Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Perfect Playlist. We're ready to get down to brass tacks, provide some sexual healing. Oh. It's time to get super horny. Just go with it, JD. I am D-Pro, and I am joined by the relentlessly horny JD. JD, yes. let's blow some trumpets, baby. How's yes. it going? Yes, we're about to affix our mouths on some reeds. I don't know. Is that how you do it when you play the a brass instrument, a wind instrument? That, that's a wind instrument. So clarinet or, ah. a sax, or like a, a saxophone, you'd also have a reed. But for trumpet, there's just like a mouthpiece. So clearly, yeah. we're, we're all learning a lot today about things to do with our mouth on objects. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gross. Great start. Great but, start to the show. Welcome to the perfect <laughs> playlist. Today, it's all about the horns. I have a, a strong affection for horns mm. that, uh, that, that carries over throughout most of my life. Before we get into it, if you don't already follow us on Twitter at the Perfect PL or on Instagram at the Perfect Playlist Pod, or give us a five star review, only five stars accepted on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So, so JD, today we're going to be talking all about songs that were made better or that stand out because of the inclusion of horns, whether it be an entire section or just one solitary horn. Looking forward to getting into that with you today. I'm one of those people where a horn or a brass sound kind of jars me a little bit, uh, and I can't help it. It's like a physical reaction I have. I appreciated the challenge of putting five songs forth on our 10-song playlist, but I, I'm very interested to hear your take as a person who grew up playing horns and whatever, I don't know, saxophone, whatever you played throughout your life. I'm interested to hear your take on all this. Genuinely interested, Deep Row. As we the, go along. For the first time ever. Genuinely yeah. interested. In yeah, I actually want to hear what you want to say for <laughs> yeah, the first time in our 20-year friendship. Very short story, and I won't bore you, I promise. I was actually supposed to play trombone. Oh. In the fourth grade, they made you try an instrument in my school when I was in fourth grade. So I had the paper all written out, Mer trombone. Yeah, It looked like slide. fun. It looked like fun to, like, yeah. you know, yank that thing, whatever. <laughs> and the night before I was supposed to hand it in, my father came to me and said, Joey, you're playing trumpet. Ooh. Like, no, I'm playing trombone he said no i got a friend who's got an extra trumpet yeah you're gonna play trumpet yep, i don't yep. know why my dad sounds like a wise guy here yeah. <laughs> he sounds like joe. a mob guy hey joey hey, you're joe, playing you're trumpet. Gonna play in a trumpet yeah he sounds nothing like wrap that. your lips on this <laughs> <laughs> that was another night so you know i, I want to play in trumpet for you know a lot of my adolescence and i enjoyed it to a certain extent and that's where really where i got into performing and kind of getting over my fears as a performer. So it, it kind of did a lot for me. <laughs> Afraid to look even worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, I, and I will say, carrying around a trumpet case in school. Oh, what a nerd. The girls love that. Oh, what <laughs> like, a nerd. It was like estrogen repellent. <laughs> they just ran from me. With the exception of the band girls, who can be freaky, I will say. Not that I know much about that, but I heard we'll they can. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Oh, okay. A little teaser there, yeah, GD. I, I like it. So, so I played trumpet as a kid and a little bit as, as you know in my adolescent years and I actually got into a ska band because of that so this is what I call a nerd opportunity so I was a senior in high school but I was put in a position where I had to lead the horn section <laughs> GD I was not nor am I, I am I a very good trumpet player but I could play <laughs> kind of like how you said you are as a bassist like if you give me a part I, I can, can do it I could do it you yeah. know as long as it's not too involved you know too complex mm -hmm. but I could do it but then because the leader of the horn section had left he was this drunk this trombone player who's great but he was never there so it was really up to me to lead the section and be the soloist for our horn section. And I was not well equipped to do that. So I actually have sent you, if you check your email, a sound clip of me playing 
trumpet in the ska band called Don't Ask Alex from 1996. The sound quality is terrible. This was included on a compilation, so let's take a listen. Oh, yeah, look at this. About to get up. Here it comes. Oh, that's you? No, that's me. <laughs> I wrote that thing. I wrote that. Wow, that you wrote solo. that. Wow, very nice. Yeah, this is a song. This was believe it or not, our closer. Wow, look at you. All right, little little ska from Depro there. So that is off. Hey, look, if you want a copy, you can still probably get it. <laughs> Ironically, called "Best of the Best" off Dawson Records. Best of the best. <laughs> More like shittiest of the shittiest. More like a virgin's virgin. But for the most part, I showed up. We had a lot of fun. Played a lot of crappy didn't music. Meet many, didn't meet many girls. No, I, 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 got, all. I got approached one time after one of my shows by this heavyweight. And it was, <laughs> it was not a good situation. She, she followed me to the bathroom. <laughs> looking, for, looking for the concession stand, made a wrong left, and ended up by you. What you <laughs> I mean, what do you expect when you're the trumpet player in a ska band, not right? Not much. Oh You're not God. getting much ass. My so. story is greater than your stories with bands. I'll tell you that right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah, you, you beat me. You definitely trump me in that category, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Oh, so that's that's friend. where my love of horns comes from. You know, wow. uh, seven minutes later, where <laughs> we got it. You got the backstory. <laughs> but you know, across all genres of music, I think it's a. Gr- I've I've. For one, you know, it doesn't work all the time, but I think it's a great accompaniment, a great asset to include in music. We are, and just as a disclaimer, we're not going to be including like Tower Power, Miles Davis, James Brown, some classic yeah. trumpets, uh, some cl- classic, um, you know, music that incorporates horns. This is more so songs that, while some of them may be hits, are are not as obvious and prominent, and songs that we feel um, horns accentuated and made better. Without further ado, let's get into our first one. Horns right off the bat, man. From 40 Ounces of Freedom, 40 Ounces to Freedom, excuse me, from 1992, the 18th song on this album. A cheery song about getting forced sex and then getting punished for it. Let me tell you about a girl I know. Had a drink about an hour ago. Sitting in the corner by herself. In a bar in downtown hell. JD, this 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 is from one of my Desert Island albums. Yes, Sublime. Freedom. Fantastic. When I, I forgot to mention the artist Sublime on this one, date rape song. So this is the first ska song I remember hearing as a teenager, and it drew me in immediately. Yes, like, I it, you know I, I know I said I was in a ska band as a trumpet player. I wound up being essentially a Bradley Noel ripoff, and my next next band as a singer guitarist wanted to be this guy. He just had something about him, and although he didn't give us a lot, you know, you know, volume wise, wise, yeah. Volume wise mm-hmm. yeah. But what he gave us is, is tremendous, and this is a this is you know kind of the, the center point of an album that a lot of people love. You know, I, I just love it because right here, right, just the horns come in, they swell. They're not, they're not front and center. They're just accenting his voice, and they cut out, and then they come back. It's just like it's used so well on this song to paint a picture. Um, and this song really took off after the album did in 1995. 
this song received a lot of airplay in California, justifiably so. And then they released it some three years later after the album debut as a single. So not an immediate hit for the band, even though the album was uh, somewhat of an immediate hit in certain areas of the country. But this song really helped bring it to the forefront in 95. Yeah, I always felt bad that Bradley Knoll really achieved his success after he passed away. Yeah. But I don't know that he would have really... I think he's the kind of guy who just played for the love of the music. Mm. You know, he felt that he lived this music. So Yeah, he certainly did. So I don't know if it would have made that big of a difference to him to know that he was adored by millions rather than adored just by the people that were in the room with him. I like the vocalist that they're continuing on with, this guy named Rome. Oh, Rome, yeah. He does a good job vocally. He's good. Of capturing Bradley's spirit. Um, and they're writing new stuff, and they're still touring, so it's nice to see. But it doesn't quite have this same bite to it, the same feel to it that yeah, Bradley brought. It's never going to. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I like the fact that overall about ska music in general, which this certainly is an example of, is I like how ska could take serious topics and, and talk about them in a tongue-in-cheek way, which you really the song do. does. you don't really do in other yeah. genres of music. Yeah, I don't want to talk really about the origin of the song just because it's not very kind, but um, they did end up writing the song after seeing Fishbone. They saw Fishbone and were inspired to by the energy and the tempo of, of their performance, which is, if you've ever seen them, they're just absolutely electric, whether you like the music or not, and were inspired to write this track. So pretty cool. That's cool. I like this outro here with the sax. Yes. Well, we just missed it, but... I did, at least. <laughs> Thanks for talking over the sax. Uh, yeah. I said I wanted sexual <laughs> healing, and you didn't listen, JD. I think it's pretty cool, though. I mean, kids these days, quote-unquote kids these days, sound like such a such an old old ass. Kids these days, though, I mean, they are still appreciating Sublime. and Yeah, they are. My, my little uh, side note here, JD, my 12-year-old son went to the store and this kind of came out of nowhere. He was getting shirts for school because the school year just started recently. Mm-hmm. And he got a sublime shirt with like this, you know, the sublime sun in the middle. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm referring to. I, I admire that appreciation. But I also pulled him aside. I said, dude, you got to know the music. <laughs> like you don't know a single sublime song. You don't want to be one of those people. You're he got like guy. an ACDC, Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> he got like a ramen noodle shirt. It's like, dude, like, I mean, I appreciate the fact that you're going to, you're, you're trying to be, you know, a little eccentric here right. and quirky, but but take on, on take down some black and black, my friend. Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta. exactly. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I totally get that. All right, the lead single off of Paul Simon's 1986 landmark Graceland, Graceland album, baby. album Classic. of the year in 1987, Grammy winner. This is "You Can Call Me Al." A man walks down the street. He says, "Why am I soft in the middle now?" Why am I soft in the middle of the rest of my life is so hard I need a photo opportunity, I want a shot of redemption Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight Far away my well Alright, our boy Paul Simon Featuring in the very, very memorable video, Chevy Chase lip-syncing the words Ah, before people caught on to the fact that Chevy's an asshole I know, yeah. I don't think it took him very long after that, though. But it was widely known after that. <laughs> yeah. The song essentially sounds like it's about a man having like a midlife crisis or a psychotic breakdown. Definitely what it's about, yeah. He's, he's asking all these existential questions about life. Yep. And then the chorus, it seems rather simplistic, but apparently the lyric of the chorus was inspired because uh, Paul Simon and his wife at the time 
went to a party that in New York that was hosted by, um, I think, a record producer mm-hmm. uh, who didn't know who they who were. Who hasn't attended one of those? I, exactly, yeah. right. Uh, who didn't know who they were and ah. called them Al and Betty. That, that's, Al and Betty is like a little in-joke between the two of them. Yeah. I like that. Which, But it's, it's funny. Call me Betty, I'll call you Al. Or whatever, yeah, call me Al. If I you like really that. break it down, it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense when you compare the verses and the chorus. No. Not no. at all. So for, you know... Here we are, what, almost 35 years later, and I just learned the meaning of that. So I appreciate that that little tidbit. And I like what you said about a spiritual journey, because in the beginning, this person is almost like in a Larry David-esque kind of way, questioning, like, their soft gut and their, yeah. uh, at around, like, he talks about a short span of attention, dwells on that, and obviously that's a euphemism for having a small penis, right? At around the one-minute mark. So, like, this is a person who is really questioning their own existence and then in the end kind of finds themselves so in the third verse and and chorus that's when you start hearing the horns come in and this person finds africa not in the way the those posers from toto did (laughs) 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 this is a person who did have a a a journey i mean uh, a spiritual journey and so this is autobiographical for paul simon by 1986, when this song came out, Paul Simon hadn't had a t- hit in 10 years. So he decided to write about his um, own journey of relevancy and how he felt irrelevant at the time until he discovered this, you know, racial struggle and strife in Africa and wanted to be a part of it. That's pretty you know, making, making things better. So. That's really poetic. I didn't really realize this song was that deep. It is, and you know, again, you know, so 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 many years ago, uh, I, I didn't know that either. Um, but this is the final final hit, final top forty hit of Paul Simon's career. But what a great career! And one of my favorite Good way to go out. One of my favorite songwriters of all time. Yeah. I didn't realize that until I actually wrote a list of my favorite songs to realize he's all over it. Yeah. But by the way, we cannot miss an opportunity to listen to this little bass interlude here because I didn't realize that this bass interlude played by bassist Bakithi Kamalo Good job uh, Bakithi Yeah exactly was and Paul Simon realized it was his birthday the day that they recorded this song Oh, so we gave him the opportunity to play a solo which is played forward and then played in reverse which is why you get that funky little Oh funky engineering there Funky engineering there yeah so we cannot miss it it's coming up right now Love that very cool. Very cool touch. And then the real horns are in right here. Yeah, this is actually, I didn't realize that, but it's almost like, you know, Friday the 13th, you don't really, I don't think you see Jason Voorhees at all. Right, <laughs> you know, the first one, yes. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like that with this. You said to me, hey, do you realize there's no horns until the last like 20 seconds? I said, actually, <laughs> I did not. I thought they were throughout. But, you know, the synthesizer played throughout kind of, kind of fools your mind a little bit. And good for uh, good for Paul Simon in '83, uh, right around the time of Return of the Jedi. Dude, married Carrie Fisher. Right, that's some yeah. prime Carrie Fisher right there. That's amazing. I mean, primo if, Carrie if, Fisher. If, if, 1983. If, if you're writing the Sound of Silence and Bridge Over Troubled Water, you deserve that. Yeah, and then going to Princess Leia. Yeah, that's a good run. That's a good run, my friend. Amazing run. Let's move the playlist to 1984. Back a little. Two years, 1984. This is sexy sax, to this your point is earlier. Very sexual. Yes. Smooth sax, probably. I shouldn't even say probably. I'll say definitely. This is the most definitive sax line in pop music history. It's a careless whisper, baby. George Michael. I feel so 
Deeper, why are you why are you now sitting closer to me here in the studio? What's what's going on here? You feeling this? I can't fight my what my body wants. <laughs> I can't fight that it. That sax is luring you in. That sax does it every single you time. Want a little little vitamin JD. And apparently, I mean, this is Careless Whisper by Wham. Technically, right? Technically, uh, Andrew Ridley, Ridley was involved in it. Yeah, only in formality though. This is technically. This is George Michael's first solo song. Don't edge Andrew out of this. Come on, give him something. <laughs> Andrew. Let him have it. But he then later credited Andrew as a co-writer because Wham still hadn't broke up at that time. So, so first, first solo effort, though, technically for George Michael. Apparently, George Michael was so adamant about getting the sax line like perfect mm-hmm. that he had 11 different saxophonists come in to record the part. Wow. Yeah, which I find interesting because... but. As a songwriter myself, oh, JD, here we go, here fellas. we go, here we go, waiting on the line, <laughs> sit at the table, master class coming up. You have an idea in your head about what you want a song to sound like, you know, in the tone and everything like that. And if, and I've been in the studio with other bands, and sometimes the drummer, or bassist, whatever, doesn't really deliver the song you hear in your head. Yeah, and uh, which is probably the reason that Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy took 15 plus years to, to finalize because no we couldn't match the sound that was in Axl Rose's head. Mm-hmm. So I get that. But still, it's it's a fairly simple line. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is relatively straightforward, but I guess the power and conviction on which it's delivered is, is fucking great. George Michael claimed that this is, uh, he's gotten more compliments on this sax line, which he wrote, by the way, the melody of more than anything else he's ever written. It's sometimes simplicity works, right? I think so too. And I can't hear this song, JD. Tell me if you agree. I know where you're going with this, but without envisioning the sexy sax man, <laughs> not which at was, all. For me, the whole, it's in the YouTube Hall of Fame. I don't know that there's anything I've ever watched more, gone back and watched more times. So if you somehow do not know what I'm talking about, please go to YouTube, pause the show, go to YouTube <laughs> and search "sexy sax man," and you'll see there's this guy Sergio Flores, who shirtless and with a sunglasses and in, a, in a mall and a, and a, in and a mullet would just go to random public places and play the sax line oh uh, so good especially when the security guards ushering him out and he just keeps playing he just keeps playing it as he's being ushered out oh. it is the like what i call like you know stupid great it's like one of the stupidest greatest bits i've ever seen in my life not exactly high comedy but our kind of comedy deeper to your point if you like the show you'll like that bit i'll tell you <laughs> yeah. that much right now George Michael, though, wrote this song when he was 17 years old. Can you imagine being 17 years old and writing this? However, later in his career, he dismissed this song. He negged it all the time, claiming it wasn't a part of his emotional development because it wasn't based on anything that he ever experienced. Okay. This song was hypothetical. So he wrote the song as a 17-year-old on his way to his movie usher job. Uh, as a hypothetical scenario so he said quote it disappoints me that you can write a lyric very flippantly yeah. not a particularly good lyric and it can mean to so much to so, so much, many so people. many people that's delusioning for a writer I have that same note in my notes yeah it's that's disillusioning for a writer yeah, it's true but I mean come on get over it's a hit I know accept it he just prefers that his songwriting I guess come from a personal space rather than a fictional one which it makes sense, especially if that was an outlier and everything else you did was so close to your heart. Yeah, but meanwhile, that. like, you know, too funky and uh, I want your sex. Like, wh- where are we going here? <laughs> that was part of his emotional development, if you will. <laughs> Quote, unquote, development. Uh, one thing I love, uh, my last 
stupid trivia pop-up video tidbit about this song, though. In 2014, um, a member of the Oakland A's outfielder, Josh Reddick, he uh, chose this as his walk-up song. I mean, picture <laughs> That's a amazing. ballpark, sold, you know, 60,000 fans in attendance, and then starts playing as, oh. as this guy comes up to bat. I'm jumping to YouTube as soon as we're done here to watch that. It's gold. His first game using the song, two for three with a triple and two runs scored. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So it works. But this song is influential, though. It's covered later by uh, Seether, Eagles of Death Metal, Bananarama, I think, um, and Wilson of Heart also did it. It's a very, very powerful song, a good hit, great use of the saxophone. Moving right along, bright and cheery sounds. It hits you right in the face right away, J.D. Sure does. Side one of Stevie Wonder's iconic 1976 double LP, Songs in the Key of Life, ends with a tribute to Duke Ellington, Sir Duke on the Perfect Playlist. All right. In 1977, peaked at number one for three weeks. 17 weeks on the top 100. Who saw this coming? Stevie Wonder didn't. (laughs) So, I mean, are we just going to go right into the jokes? Yeah, let's go right into the blind jokes, yeah. So, okay, I'm going to go right into it right now. This let's talk about whether or not Stevie Wonder is actually blind. Okay, let's do it. So from a Stevie Wonder Truther blog, mm. quote, I watched an interview with Boy George a few months back, yeah. and he reckons that Stevie Wonder is not completely blind since Stevie Wonder once came over and playfully strangled him at a party once. Oh. And Boy George was like, How could he know where I was if he was completely blind? That's fair. That is fair. That is fair. Um <laughs> So that's important. It's, it's important to acknowledge that this report not only suggests Wonder continued sightedness, but also his use of vision for violence and bigotry in the strangulation of an openly and some would say flamboyantly homosexual man. Wow. The idea that Wonder is, like, not completely blind has been further corroborated by certified Yahoo Answers reporter AFFLKDSJ underscore one. The takeaway, Stevie Wonder is homophobic and targeted Boy George with his, with his eyes. <laughs> I like the certified Yahoo. Who answers like critic or whatever <laughs> expert? Excuse me, that is brilliant. But yeah, this song a love note to uh, Duke Duke Ellington, Ella well, Fitzgerald too. I believe there's there's several fo- yeah, you know several, several legends that are involved. Yeah, in, in several mentioned. musicians. I mean, this his love letter to music in general, in addition to Duke Ellington. Yeah, uh, Louis Armstrong, that. Count they're Basie. Not, there are not a lot of hits that directly pay tribute to those who've come before you. Yeah. Even I Love Rock and Roll didn't call out who she loved. Or exactly. Maybe she that was, was the Who she was flicking verse. the bean to. <laughs> <laughs> but point taken there, Joan Dett. Uh, nonetheless, you know, Stevie was quoted, though, to your point, though, responding to a journalist asking if he's been blind or being blind was not too much of a burden. He said, well, you know, it could have been worse. I could have been black, for instance. <laughs> Stevie Wonder. That's pretty good. Pretty That's good. pretty good. Pretty, pretty Not good. Not that being black is bad, but because the joke is then he doesn't know he's black. Yep. Uh, there we just go. Just want to spell it out just in case you misinterpreted that. There, there actually was another episode of this podcast about um, where we went over Ebony and Ivory. Yes. And I looked up a promo shot of Stevie and Paul McCartney 
Stevie's looking directly at the camera. Oh, no. Like, directly at the camera lens. Oh, no. How is it even possible? I don't know, man. But I don't know. I'm starting to believe um, Yahoo reporter AFLKTSJ underscore one. But this song, very horns forward. Very, very horns. It's song. in your face. It's yeah. probably the horniest song that we do tonight. Like, it's it's all about the horns. Without the horns, this song just, for me, doesn't work. Speaking I'll listen to, listen to this shit. Massive, massive hook. Speaking of horns uh, and horny, Stevie Wonder be banging. I don't know if you know that. Uh, his ex-girlfriend, right around the turn of the century, filed a $30 million palimony suit against him, alleging... That he gave her an STD. What does palimony <laughs> suggest? That they were that they, they had an arrangement good. whereby she didn't have to work and he would give her X amount of dollars to take care of him, kind of thing. When I hear so. palimony, I think that they were just good friends, good pals, good buddies. Yeah. <laughs> he gave her an STD allegedly, according to this lawsuit. I think they might have settled out of court, but I'm not sure. However, I did end up writing a few based on this theme of of Stevie Wonder having sex. I wrote a few. Songs for him. Okay, let's Maybe hear. Maybe he can go. <clears throat> Syphilis and herpes live together in perfect harmony. How's that? Pretty good. I I don't know if it would make the charts, but <laughs> I'd enjoy. It. I listen to that. All right, here's another one. I just called to say I'm suing you, and I mean that from the bottom of my parts. <laughs> Pretty good? <laughs> How about I just called to say I'm going to bang you? <laughs> I mean, do you think he reads rib condoms like Braille when he's putting them on? <laughs> Something tells me he doesn't use them at all. <laughs> all right. Oh, boy. We are looking at songs that feature horns very prominently, brass, sax, etc. And here's another one, no exception, Amy Winehouse and Rehab. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time, and if my daddy thinks I'm fine. Dearly Departed, Amy Winehouse, with producer Mark Ronson at the helm, and Rehab. What a hit, man. I mean, this whole album was just freaking fantastic. I mean, I was saying earlier about how, um, who was the artist that I said did that gave us, a, didn't give us all, Sublime, Bradley Noel, mm -hmm. you know, died young, but man, what she gave us, what Amy did give us is just yeah. stand, it, I think it'll stand the test of time. Definitely. Every, a, a lot of the songs on the whole, the whole Back in Black album is just tremendous. It is a tremendous album. I mean, this is the, her debut album in the US at least, her 2008 Song of the Year, won a few other Grammys as well. Mark Ronson run, won, excuse me, for Producer of the Year on this one. And this song to me is a little bit of a, a, a cry for help, but also like an unwavering ode to individuality. She's just saying like, this is who I am, take it or leave it kind of thing. That's who she was until the day she died. Yeah. 
And uh, some, would, some people would say they were surprised she lasted as long as she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song, I, th- I thought, kind of has a modern James Brown quality to it. Yeah, and okay. that's that's, Mar- that's Ronson's appeal, for sure. Yeah, I like it a lot. It has that funk. It has that kind of danceability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Winehouse died, she had a blood alcohol level of 0.416. Whoa. That's five times the legal limit. So she truly lived the life that she sang about. Yeah, I, I they did find her... In her home, 2011, she's definitely one of those uh, at age 27. So she's definitely one of those members of the 27 Club, you know, Cobain, Joplin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, those who passed away at 27. Um, she famously, uh, not to a positive degree, but famously, you know, did go to rehab. Um, despite her attesting in this song, she's an individual and doesn't need it. Um, her management company, music label, wanted her to go to rehab and get clean, but she claimed she didn't need to because her father agreed. And her father basically said she wasn't an alcoholic, but had been drinking too much because she was lovesick over her boyfriend, Blake. And he said, quote, you can't go to rehab for that. So can't go to rehab because you're lovesick. Exactly. He says alcoholics drink every day. But his daughter doesn't drink every day. She would only go to rehab if he said she needed to. And so there inherently was the fatal flaw. Ultimately cost her her life. You know, her her the weight that she put on her father who controlled her very much, uh, which was the subject of the documentary uh, Amy. Very powerful and sad documentary. It's sad because a lot of artists like her and... Uh, you know, troubled folks like her do not, they're almost destined not to live a long life. But, I, I, you know, when Flea was giving uh, a speech about the induction of Metallica mm-hmm. in the, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he's talking about Cliff Burton, uh, the, the, the original Metallica bassist. Yep. About how, uh, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you is you don't get to sing the song that's within you. Yeah. And the most beautiful opposite of that is when somebody gets to sing the song that's within them before they die, before yeah. they leave this earth. And I, I really think that, to get serious for a minute, that, that Amy Winehouse really did get to show the you know her heart and soul to the world and show her talents before she left us. So good yeah. for her. Yeah, her and Ronson, they were walking down the street one day, and she just kind of belted this out. That's the, the origin of this song. Ronson thought it was great, told her to get right in the studio and write the song. She wrote it within 30 minutes, and then he added the production. And the thing I love so much about Ronson's one of my favorite modern producers, him, Danger Mouse, a few others. Um, but he added that 50s and 60s doo-wop sound to everything he does virtually. It, it comes through, and Amy Winehouse is the perfect vehicle for that sound. She had a throwback sound. Yeah. She sounded like she, she, looked she didn't too. belong where she was, and I mean in the best possible yeah, way. Yeah, 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 indeed. From the 60s sound to a song that was actually released in the 60s. Here's the Beatles. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello On the corner is a banker with a motor car So released in 1967 as a double single with Strawberry Fields Forever. Wow. What a one-two punch. Penny Lane. What a flex. I mean, only the Beatles can do something like that. Nobody yeah. else could. That's putting your D on the table, so to speak. 
This is the first Beatles song, right, to ever get played on the perfect playlist. I think so. I think so. I mean, we we do we tend to do kind of eighties and nineties or a lot of that yep. kind of genre, uh, uh, you know, time period. Um, a song not necessarily known for having a driving horn part, but mainly for its iconic solo, which is coming up soon. Yeah, it is. It is, and. I, the thing I love, too, about this sound is they're also incorporating flutes, other wind instruments and things. Yeah. Can we talk a second, J.D., about yeah. uh, the Rolling Stones list of t- top 500 songs of all time? Okay. I, I always find it... They they like to poke the bear a little bit. They like to be a little controversial just so it gets in the news and well, gets, gets subscriptions up. But oh, let's, hear the, let's hear this um, yeah. piccolo trumpet here. I mean, oh, that note... Deeper, you know what that... That, that, just that reminds me of. <laughs> I just like it. I hear no difference. Just like I hear it. no difference at all. <laughs> it's so close. <laughs> no, but I, <laughs> I wrote that solo too. Oh, I believe it. Sadly, yeah. Oh, <laughs> they're hearing up. it. Oh, shut up. <laughs> And I usually am fine with these lists because they're all subjective. All lists are subjective. But yes. Rolling Stone, so this was listed in 2011, Penny Lane, as the 456th greatest song of all time. Okay. It feels low. Anyways. Uh, I don't know. I mean, lyrically, it's not fantastic. It, it's good and it's fine. I love the song. I really do. Yeah. Um, it still f- sounds like a big number for a song that is revered as much as this is. Yeah. They just, uh, so Rolling Stone just released a new list of the top 500 recently. Okay. Um, they, they, I have some issues because I can, I, there's only so much, you know, so much horse shit I can deal with. Right? <laughs> Here we go. Missy Elliott, nothing against her. A lot of people, I think, are with me on this. Get your freak on. People know in the song, get yep. your freak on. Timbaland special. Number Eight. Nope. Eight. Nope. 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 You want to put it 108, 208, even then it's a maybe for me. Right. Um, 98. And even even then I'm still arguing with you. Greatest songs. I'll put any one of Lauren Hill's over that one. Yep. Agreed. Like, all right. So let's just say they decided they needed some representation, female, et cetera, et cetera. Agreed. R&B or rap. Um, I can pick at least 10 that trump that one. So, sorry. I mean, sorry, Rolling Stone. Their algorithm is clearly broken because yeah. they, they were asking, you know, it's a record, voting system or something. That like yeah. record, um, you know, record executives yep. and, and artists and things like that. But, you, you know, you're just wrong. Yeah. Uh, others are wrong. Uh, other issues. Since you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson, higher than I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Nope. Don't agree with that at all. Cut the shit. Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, higher than The Beatles Yesterday. And Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. Mm, I could see it being higher than Sweet Child of Mine. Not necessarily my vote, but I, I could can. see it. But yeah, I, I guess it's not as egregious, but still. Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill is one spot higher than Stairway to Heaven. I've never even heard that fucking song, but I know that it cannot be better than Stairway to Heaven. I know it, but it doesn't belong. I, get, get out. Just stop. It's just it's very try-hard, is I guess your overall point. The last note. Yeah. Daddy Yankees. Gasolina oh, song. No, no, no. That does not belong on any list. Okay. Is ranked higher than every song I've just mentioned. No. Yes. Gasolina. Can you imagine that song being better than Sweet Child of Mine? Or yesterday. No. Oh my or fast God. or even Fast Car for that matter. Or even running up that hill for that matter. So it's top what? Top hundred? 
the, the ones I'm got. Yeah, so Gasolina was number fifty. No, fifty. Get the fuck out of here. Fifty. So now, see, now you're feeling. Now you're sharing my anger. Yeah, this is what I was get, hoping for. Starting to get mad. Starting to get salty. Salty. All right. Jeez. God. All right. Wow. Got to reset so, here. I got to reset my brain. That's that's rough rough information. <laughs> Former pop giants to the. <laughs> <laughs> Former pop Passes shine. it to the man. <laughs> and boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> From the former pop giants, the Beatles, to one of the current pop giants. It's Taylor Swift and Shake It Off. I say I'm too late. Got nothing in my brain. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. I go on too many dates. <laughs> but I can't. There she is. I saw this on your list, JD, and I got so happy because I knew that means we might be getting another Max Martin infraction. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear another Max Martin? I go on too many dates or <laughs> whatever triumph the insult comic dog impression you want to do of, of this guy. And I was going to look him up to see if I can see what he really looks sounds like. Oh. I don't I don't want to know. Right. I just choose to go by your impression of him. He just looks dirty. He looks yeah. like a dirty, like... James Blunt, like I don't know how to put it. I've seen that. I've I've now seen him, but I have not heard his voice. But gotcha. I, I want to believe that it sounds exactly how you interpret it today. <laughs> so I say that because uh, he's he's one of the co-writers in this song, "Shake It Up" by Taylor Swift. So. Yeah, he is. He's a producer as well on this song, and um, you know, she wrote the song with Max Martin and Shellback, another Swedish producer. Uh, but. They, she also worked with them on We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, I Knew You Were Trouble, which we've also featured on this show. Yeah. And this song for her was a departure from the Nashville sound, the country sound that really brought her up yep. and into the mind's eye of uh, the public. This album, 1989, she announced was going to be her entry into the pop world in 2014. And it sure was. And, and and JD, I noticed this is the second time you brought a song to the show that revolves directly around a young female artist's lament about the media harassing her. Do you remember the first one? Uh, good question, but I think it was Lindsay Lohan. It was. Rumors by <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Yeah, so I, I dig your empathy, brother. Yes. I mean, if anything, you want to pick this song apart. I included it because of the horns. The horns are very, almost, the horns act as a bass line on this song. They do. They really do. So the horn really, and it may have, be accented a little bit, you know, mechanically, but the horn that's there, or it's like a sax or something. I think it's a Barry sax. It sounds like it. But it is, uh, it is definitely a driver. Um, but yeah, like the Lindsay Lohan song, the writing here is insanely, the lyric writing is insanely simplistic. It is. It really is. That probably explains why, JD, I looked this up on YouTube, 10 million people like the video. Hmm. One million people dislike the video. Wow, quite a ratio. Which is really polarizing. That's a I high mean, ratio for YouTube, I, don't know I would how say. How that's possible. I mean, Donald Trump posing with an upside down Bible probably wouldn't get one million dislikes. <laughs> I mean, is this song really that polarizable and polarizing? Yeah. I don't think so. Um, I think it's because she's addressing um, 
all the criticism coming from people about who she's dating, how many people she's dating. We talked about this on the show in the past, it being a very much a thing that informs her writing. So maybe people take umbrage with that fact. It's funny you mention that because the top comment was, I bet the one million people who dislike this song are the players, the haters, the heartbreakers, and the fakers who haven't shaken it off yet. <laughs> I like to sing that part of the song. I like to sing, and I'm going to masturbate, bait, 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 bait. <laughs> you know the, me. That's the male version. That's the JD yeah, version of the song. Me. I always got to bring it down. Dude. Always common denominator, of course. <laughs> but the, I think you referred to it as tenor tenor horn. Is that what you called it? I think it's a baritone sax. Baritone sax, okay. Which is going to be featured in a song that's coming up next. So probably the the, the best version of the Barry sax coming up. I, so I had to include a current pop song, somewhat current, seven years ago, uh, that included horns on this playlist or a version of horns. It was between this one, Problem by Ariana Grande, or uh, Thrift Shop by Macklemore. And I was like, eh, let me go with Taylor Swift once again. But nonetheless, because I, I like hearing the horns in modern modern music, and it's becoming more and more rare as we go along these these years here, Deep Pro. It is. It makes me sad because there's, and, and I think that there, there will be a swing back, and we'll see more of that. I mean, you heard a lot of that in like '70s music, and in like disco and, and funk and all that, and soul. Mm. Um, and, and I think there's a place for it in various forms of music. But now it's kind of like that. That like that nerdy friend that you don't want anybody to know that you're friends with. Like, <laughs> hey, and then I've talked about that in the past as well. Is nobody we don't want to admit that this is something that we associate with, but we do. Like, be we didn't include it here, but um, Crazy in Love, Beyonce. That song is is what it is because of the horns. Like, let's stop let's stop pretending that the horns aren't this wonderful thing that that really take a song and make it shine. That's the premise of the playlist. If you could make a horn cool in R&B and hip-hop, then it is infinitely cool in my mind. And a song that does that very well is our next song. At the count of three, I want everybody in the place to be to make some noise if you're down with me. One, two, three. Hit me with the horn, 20. Listen to that audience, JD. They go bonkers for the baritone sax. I mean, I want to be at that party. Right? It's so... obviously recorded live. Cool. Yeah. Recorded live at Bahama Bay Nightclub in Philly. Thus the Bahama Bay reference in the song. Uh, DJ Cool, Let Me Clear My Throat. It's one of those songs where its live version is the popular one. This song is a nearly five-minute party. Yeah. Accentuated by the sultry tones of the aforementioned baritone sax. I think we should eventually do a playlist of, like, the best live songs or, or something yeah, like of that. of course, yeah. Our favorite live songs. Yeah. Um, so it's a shame it's here and not there, but still, no regrets. Uh, no regrets. No regrets. This is a very cool use of uh, multiple samples using horns um, in a hip-hop song. So this song, I believe, is from 1996, right? My aforementioned ska band, Don't Ask Alex, performed this song at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. The fabled Stone wow. Pony in Asbury Park. It was one of those things where there was a good vibe in, in the room and whatever. There was maybe 50, 60 people in the audience. And our singer was like, hey, we'd been fucking around with it at rehearsals and said, hey, we can do Let Me Clear My Throat. And at the time, it was really, really big. We started doing it, and we had a baritone sax player. And... Um, I actually was the one who screwed the song up. We had to stop. <laughs> there was a stoppage, like like right here, and I kept playing the line. 
Yeah, you gotta yeah. you gotta get that pause in there, man. Just let the let the beat breathe and then bring it back. Right? Yep. Yeah. Bring yeah, it exactly. back with a vengeance. But yeah, this this horn uh, sampled on the intro from Cool and the Gang's Hollywood Swinging, as well as the sax sample you hear right here is from a 1967 tune, Marva Whitney, called Unwind Yourself. And yep. Whitney was a backup singer for James Brown, by the way. We could have very easily included this on the samples playlist we did yeah. recently. Yeah, this this fits a couple of our uh, our uh, little niche playlists on this show, for sure. Here's a question, JD, and if you don't know, fine, just say so. But yeah, the people in this audience seem to know this as a hit. Was this a hit? I don't think it was a hit before this recording, was it? Before? I don't think so. This version of the song did go up to number 30 on Billboard. Um but that when that Barrett so. when that sax hit those people went berserk like they that did. was a line that they was etched in their up. memory they knew yeah it was like a muscle memory had been triggered. There is another version of this song that does have Biz Marquee and Dougie Fresh on it. Dougie yes. Fresh uh, worked with Slick Rick, beatboxer guys, um, very early '80s. They were very popular, both of those guys. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Speaking of uh, Biz Marquee, recently recently passed away, uh, but nonetheless, Biz Marquee. I ended up DJing one of my sister's friend's weddings. Really? She attended, yeah. Wow, that's got to be a cool experience. <laughs> Pretty no? cool, right? Did he do Just a Friend? He absolutely did Just a Friend. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see footage of that, man. That's great. <laughs> and now this song is a little bit of a rarity in hip-hop. I mean, um, you know, as I mentioned, DJ Cool, Dougie Fresh, you know, people like this were a little older when this song came out in 97. By the time this song came out, you know, hip-hop, they like them young. I remember when Down With The King came out. What was that, 93, 94, something like that. Run DMC. I saw the video for that, and I saw Run DMC again, Down With The King. Very good song. I was like, oh, these guys are fossils. I was thinking like, and meanwhile, they're probably, what, 34 at that time? Exactly. Because, yeah. you it's know, all relative, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Raising Hell, might have they might have been like, what, 22 at that time or something, tops. Yeah. So I see them 10 years later, and I'm thinking they're just ancient. Uh, but that's the way hip-hop goes. So it's interesting to see, in other words, an older guy in hip-hop have a hit. That's like when we're kids, though, right? And our parents, I remember when my mother had her 40th birthday party. I'm like, man, we got to plan her funeral soon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Here I am, like, I'm two years beyond that. You know? Jeez. Start checking out the ink on that will. <laughs> but a lot of people think uh, DJ Cool got the let me clear my throat thing from the Beastie Boys song, uh, The New Style. Off license to ill with Ad Rock. Did they? Let me clear my throat. No, he did not. He said he was just messing around with the song one time, went to sing, and then had to clear his throat. And it was like, a, <laughs> that's where he put it into the song, the goddamn part. And so it just became a bit for him. That's did, pretty cool. Did not get it from the Beasties. Yeah. This is one of those songs I love to. I love I, to I love to jam to as, as a high school kid in New Jersey. I love it. No, make any party bounce. Oh, big time. I feel that. Yep. I feel that. But speaking of songs that make a party bounce, let's talk about our next track here at JD. <laughs> if you're attending a Yacht Rock party, this is a staple, but you don't see it really fitting in anywhere else, do you? If you're a fan of The Love Boat, this, <laughs> this is the song for you. This is my selection, Baker Street from Jerry Rafferty, all because of this sax part right here. I feel like I'm on an elevator, JD. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. I don't, really don't think that this sax line is very hard to pull off. 
No, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's a tough one. No, it's fine. It's simple, uh, but it's effective. It, it, that's just it. It's effective and dare I say a little emotive. It makes you feel something. It is. It, it does all. It, it does all of those things right. That's that said. Nah, one of my favorite songs. I think it, the sax is used expertly here, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I have a confession. Yeah, go ahead. You hear these words, these lyrics right here? Yes. This is only the second time I'm hearing them. <laughs> second time? When I went back to hear the song, I never knew there were actual lyrics to this song because I always turn it off before the lyrics start. Oh, wow. I've never heard, before like two days ago, I never heard Jerry Rafferty's voice. Really? Absolutely. That's yeah. super interesting. So, Jerry Rafferty's voice. Jerry Rafferty was in Steeler's Wheel, so you never heard Stuck in the Middle with You. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was Jerry Rafferty. No. Yeah. So, I, I never heard his voice in this song, but didn't realize that mm. that, was, um, that was him, too. Yeah, that's him. He's from Steeler's Wheel, Stuck in the Middle with You, Reservoir Dogs fame, you know, to bring it to a current thing. If Somewhat current. If you're not a great looking dude mm. and you want inspiration that you can be whatever you want to be, yeah. <laughs> just Google take a look. Guy. Just look at the video for this song. <laughs> he looks like one of these guys in the 1980s WWF who would be powerbombed by Sid Vicious. <laughs> just a, a jobber. Just a goober with like librarian glasses. <laughs> goober. I haven't heard that term in so long and I love it. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I know you love this trivia, so let's talk charts real quick. quick. For the oh, six boy. weeks, this song was at number two, the number one record, giving it the Heisman for all those six weeks, Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb. So Ooh. Our, our, our boys, the Gibb brothers, they keeping are, out. They, they are our kings, uh, the Gibb brothers. Keeping out them. your boy, Jerry Rafferty. But I do I do like the theme of this song, though. This song is, is essentially about a guy who lives on this Baker Street. He owns a house on this Baker Street, and it's just like a street in London where he just really wants to get away, but he's an absolute drunk, can't escape his situation, can't achieve the goal, and is just stuck in a loop. So he he keeps drinking to forget what he doesn't have. Why are you looking at me, J.D., when you say this? (laughs) (laughs) And he realizes he's got no direction, (laughs) despite my gaze. I feel you. very targeted right now. <laughs> but yeah, and it, it, obviously, since I didn't know the song had lyrics, I didn't, never knew that it was that deep. It kind of is. And then it talks about the woman he's with and how she'll, she constantly believes he will be someone he's not. And then at the end, it talks about a new morning, really the awakening, I think, I think by the woman about realizing she has to go home to start over and that's okay. So um, a little bit here. I actually like the fact that this song was covered um, by the Foo Fighters. I didn't know that. You should listen to their version. They replaced the sax with the guitar, which, you know, eh, okay. But the I Foo do Fighters like some interesting covers. I know they recently have been doing some uh, Bee Gees covers. They did Night Fever and a couple other ones, too. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, they did. should be dancing, I think, yeah. Yeah, they did. Uh, but yeah, this was the B-side on My Hero. Um, in 2007, they put this on The Color and the Shape, the remaster of that. Um, so it's just a cool listen. Give it, give it a shot. I like. I, I miss B sides. You know, I do picking, too. Picking up like a cassette single or a CD single and be like, what gold is wait? What what possible treasure trove is waiting for me on the other side? That's how I first heard uh, Marigold, the mm-hmm. Nirvana track. Marigold, that, Yellow Lead Better by Pearl Jam. Yeah, a lot of good B sides through the years of songs that almost trump the A side, in my opinion. I like that. Nothing you know? better. Yeah. It's like finding a twenty dollar bill on the ground. <laughs> Something about the way you look tonight, trumping uh, Candle in the Wind 97. Exactly. It would have been better <laughs> if he said, you know what? Can I 
promote my new single here? Is that okay? Instead of <laughs> while we're raising all this money for charity, do you mind? <laughs> yeah. By the way, that was on another episode we recorded where we we're talking about number one hits that mm. didn't deserve to be. And one of my picks was Candle in the Wind, 1997. Aye. And, uh, yeah. But, um, this solo. Oh, this is nice. It's I a good, it's a good guitar solo. I dig it. Um, the sax, though, itself, the infamous sax hook was at, only in here as an instrumental break. It wasn't a part of the main verses at which it completely and clearly dominates now. Um, and so the producer suggested that they bring in that saxophone into the song as a dominant feature. I, and this guy, the saxophonist, he's played with Pink Floyd, Marvin Gaye, ABBA, etc. Um, later years, the saxophonist was upset because the saxophone is out of tune, according to him in this song. So Really? Yeah. I mean, I can't. You, I mean, I can't. I, I, have pretty, I, I have a pretty keen ear. I can't hear that. Yeah. I wonder if he's the same sax player who played for us and them, um, Pink Floyd. Maybe. Yeah. Could be. Saxy guy. A couple of memorable soft rock songs over these years, later defined as uh, yacht rock, and I would say this song is on the Mount Rushmore of yacht rock. That's a top five for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Deep Pro, our last song on the playlist today the horny brass inspired playlist oh yeah this was mentioned to us by a lot of people on twitter men at works classic early 80s jam where the sax is the absolute mvp reached number one in the u.s it's men at work So we put out a tweet recently asking for what your favorite horn-infused songs are. And yeah. several people mentioned this song. So really, I'm listening to the people by including this song. It's a classic song that includes the horns, known for having horns in it. Mm-hmm. Um, a big shout-out to the Throwback Podcast, who retweeted that and got some people got some people's eyeballs on it. They're sort of our cousin show, maybe our uncles, our, yeah. cre- our creepy uncles. Check out Dan and, Dan and Bob. <laughs> Dan and Very Bob. Very creepy uncles. The Dan Throwback Podcast, a big inspiration for this show. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Bob, for, for retweeting that. Uh, the lyrics came from Colin Hay, the singer, who apparently lived next door to drug dealers mm. in Victoria, in Australia, so he never knew who or what was approaching his door at any time. That's got to be scary. You're living next door to drug pushers and then... Knocking at your door could be anyone at any time looking for anything in a happy way, in a very angry and violent way. Uh, yeah. So it's got to be a very, uh, very like tenuous existence in your own home. It is. Who can it be now at my door? I got to say, these days, if somebody shows up at your door, yeah, dude, I got stranger danger now. I mean, even now, like we have to text each other, say, "Hey, I'm out, I'm outside." Right. You know, like we can't yeah. say, we can't just go up to your door and ring the doorbell. It's a different universe we're living in now. And I'm checking that ring camera. I'm talking to them through there, and God forbid, it's somebody like selling goods or services. 
Like, I am freaked out by that. And that's part of the one good thing that COVID has done is that it's kind of eliminated door-to-door sales. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a kid, maybe the most traumatic experience of my life was I was asked by my school to sell magazines door-to-door. And I was a shy, shy kid. Yes. So I remember I would do, like, my little shtick from, like, I wouldn't even climb the stairs. I would would, would knock on the door, then I'd run down the stairs and do it. Like, would you like to buy your own shoes? A a magazine (laughs) subscription. And you can tell these people wanted nothing to do with me. Like, who can it be now? Deep Row selling Sports Illustrated for kids? Fuck that guy. (laughs) Get off my property. My father felt so sorry for me that he actually... He bought two magazine subscriptions just to make me not cry. Yeah, but this is Men at Works. Who can it be now? 1981 in Australia. 1982, a number one hit in the U.S. Um, it only went to number two in Australia, right? So yeah. in, their, in their home country, it only went to number two. But here in the U.S., Colin Hay and the boys, we got your back, bro. We got love, not only for our quite a few uh, Australian listeners to The Perfect Playlist, but for men at work, too. And just like Baker Street, the saxophone lick was only earmarked for the middle of the song, but the producer suggested adding the sax part throughout the song, making it uh, definitely an identifiable hook for this song. 100%. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the main reason that this song, I think, was the hit that it was. Yep. And that's the thing about horns, is that the more you get, the more you want. <laughs> and and I, I will say that I wanted to include so many ska songs in this, but since you put Sublime on this list, I said, okay, fine, I'll take that. And um, I, so, <laughs> JD, we were horny at the beginning of this show. Mm. We got exactly what we wanted without our kids getting in the way. That rarely happens, so cheers to that. Right? Very much so, yes. We got through a very... Uh a very sexy playlist, a very horny playlist. It makes me want to whip out my horn and blow it. <laughs> oh, man, this was a fun one, Deepro. I like the uh, suggestion. This came from your your brain, your your background with the brass. I'm surprised I didn't have to push you harder. Yeah, I'm I not threw that out there yet. and kind of winced after I sent the text out. I said, JD's not going to like this. He's going to okay. scoff at me just like everybody else has done my whole life <laughs> as I walk through those halls, Wayne school system with my trumpet case (laughs) give me some valve oil please give me some valve oil but i'd say on this playlist and on this day the nerds have their time in the sun so i'm glad you put this forth for uh, for a playlist have their time in the sun so till next time check us out on twitter at the perfect pl on instagram at the perfect playlist pod till next time stay horny my friends